So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. One of Saul's young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left from Saul. Two verses later, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. David continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. Verse 28. Saul realized that the Lord was with David. And in 1 Samuel 17, when David is fighting Goliath, or in the episodes where David is given opportunities to put Saul to death, the Lord's name is provoked as the one giving David the victory or the opportunity. The Lord is with David. We've seen this in 2 Samuel. As he becomes king over all Israel in 2 Samuel 5.10, there at the bottom, David became more and more powerful in the Lord of God. The Lord God of hosts was with him. The Lord is with David, and David knows this. David sees this. And David ascribes to God that he is the one giving him victory after victory. Well, we find ourselves in 2 Samuel 7 today, and as you turn there, perhaps it is this acknowledgement of the Lord's presence in David's life that moves him to want to do what he thinks here to do. You did just stand for five verses of singing, but if you can stand now for 17 verses of reading, I do invite you to do that if you're able to. (laughs) I can guarantee that the verses that we read will be shorter than the verses you've just sang. (laughs) When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that is on your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not lived in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with the tabernacle tent. And all my journeys with with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. I will establish a place for my people Israel and plant them so that They may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. And when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan spoke all these words in this entire vision to David. Let's pray. Father, uh, it seems like the passages that I am most familiar with and perhaps think as I approach them from afar, coming up to the week I know I'll be preaching it, I have the misfortune of thinking to myself, oh, this will be easy. <laughs> but uh, your word is always heavy. Your word always always demands our humility. Help us to not think we know what you're saying. Help us instead to listen to your Holy Spirit and with open ears and an open heart to say, whatever you wish to say, speak to me. As Samuel said, speak to me for your servant is listening. Father, again, give us soft hearts. Have your way in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Man's gratitude, God's grace, and then the Son. That's our heading, three movements. I was going to preach the last section of First or Second Samuel 7, and as always, I just was coming up with, with uh, nothing. And so Christy, of course, was asking me how sermon prep was going, and I told her, well, it's the conclusion again. It's the last chunk of Scripture. She says, you could go unorthodox and tell everybody to come up with their own conclusions. But uh, I prayed about it, and I just said, you know, there is too much in this chapter, and I want to cover the next chapter next week. And I don't know if I'll still have writer's block, so of course you can be praying for that. But man's gratitude, God's grace, and the Son, man's attempts at gratitude to the eternally existing God. That's just cute, isn't it? What is David doing here? When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord... Look who's singled out here. The Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. David is only at where he's at because of Yahweh. God had had first chosen him from a youth to be a king. He's been saved multiple times out of the hands of Saul from the previous king who wanted to kill him. David's been successful wherever he's gone, whatever he's done. And so now he's in Jerusalem. It was a bit of a disaster getting the ark to Jerusalem, but he's now there. And David realizes, hey, my palace is better than God's home. How does that work? Right? We're we're told in 2 Samuel 5.11 that even David's palace was basically made for him by a a neighboring city-state. Tire. But God wanted to do something for God. Perhaps as, as payback for all he's done. Plus, we should make mention that this 
idea in this in this time and place, and in a time of peace, a time when when kings or queens were enjoying much prosperity, many ancient Near Eastern, that's what A-N-E stands for in your outlines, ancient Near Eastern royalty would build temples and palaces for their deities. So David's thinking is not uncommon. And the prophet who has David's ear isn't shocked either. In fact, without much discerning, it seems only wise. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that is that is on your heart, for the Lord is with you. I feel like I've heard that phrase before. The Lord is with you. <laughs> Build God a house, Nathan hears. David, I trust the Lord is with you. And if that's what you're thinking, go ahead. Here's what I'm reminded of. How many people before feats such as what David has accomplished when worried or when facing problems or when in the thick of battle or stress, they want to make deals with God, right? Lord, if you protect me here, then I will go be a missionary in Nepal. And we, we kind of actually see that in the Bible. In Genesis 28, for example, look at, listen to this. Then Jacob made a vow. He has the if then there, right? If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey, and if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord, then Yahweh will be my God. Vows. The Bible, or God, recognizes these vows. David's son Solomon writes about the wisdom of not vowing, period, in Ecclesiastes 5, presumably because... God might take them more seriously than apparently we do. Because when persons are out of their predicament or they're safely on the other side, not everyone is like Jacob who did worship the Lord as he said he would. Many conveniently forget what they promised. It seems clear that David is not doing this precisely here, but he is simply noting where he's at versus where the ark is, and he wants to make God a bigger temple. Why? Has David thought that one through? Does it seem only fair, only right? Like has God complained? When it gets windy, these tents, walls are just not holding up. Why does David want to do that? That's kind of the filling out that God is going to do here through Nathan. Verse 4, But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go to my servant David, And say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not lived in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with the tabernacle tent. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So I bring up the fact that, that David, what he's proposing here, is not uncommon. Other kings around him, kings in history before him, kings that would come after him and other nations would would do this. It's what Herod, who came long after David, but a little bit before Jesus, and actually intersecting with the time of Jesus, he built the Jewish temple, and it was solely for self-indulging motivations. Look at what I did. Look at the monument I made for our Jewish God, Yahweh. But from day one, Israel was always called to be set apart, to be not like the nations around them. 
And so like I, I do sometimes as a dad, I know the answer, but I try to get the child to state what's already known, right? God says to David, build me a house. Where did that come? Can you point out in Torah, <laughs> the first five books of the Bible, which David would should be familiar with? Can you point out where it says, and the Lord said to Moses, build me a house. I'm in need of one. He laid out the want for a tabernacle, which he's already in, but something tells me even Yahweh's want of a tabernacle was not out of necessity or to be shielded from the elements that he himself makes. Whenever God promised to meet David in a box, I wonder if David started putting God in a box. We said we said this last week that, that the ark is not Yahweh. Yahweh's been communicating fine with David for years while his ark has sat in some unknown's property for 70-something years. If David would be honest with himself, sure, he might say, well, gratitude, Yahweh, gratitude, Lord, you got me here. And, and he wants to build a temple because that's what kings do when things are going well. What if Yahweh did, did not want to be considered the God of the Israelites as simply as Dagon was considered the God of the Philistines or Ra was considered to be the prominent God of the Egyptians? What if Yahweh wanted to make it known that both he and his people are not like the other nations? How is God going to respond here? He's caught David. Build me a house. Why? When did I ask you to do that for me? You know, I think of us, a lot of, a lot of us have this idea down, don't we? A lot of us have great, wonderful ideas. Boy, I'm gonna do XYZ for God. And we never stop to ask why. <laughs> we never stop to think His will, to seek His will about it. We're too busy wanting to worship Him in the way that we want to, right? As pastor, even as Kevin Davis, I've had a lot of ideas that I thought were great ideas. Well, Kevin, did you pray about them? No, I don't need to pray about them. Of course God would want me to X, Y, Z. Do you see in the gospel accounts that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, we're going to talk about him here in a bit. He's in the text, but even he gets a way to pray. If you're God, but in the flesh and on planet earth, but you still need time to get away and make sure you're discerning his will and doing what he wants, I think his followers should do likewise. And so David sought Nathan's will here. That's a good thing. And Nathan thought what God wanted to do was a good thing. Of course God wants a palace. Why wouldn't he? But then God, but God doesn't need a palace. That's what Paul says actually in the New Testament. He's talking to Athenians, believers in multiple gods, each with their own shrines and locales. And, and Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. God is the one who gives life, breath, all things. Calvin and Landon did not come out of the womb as kids and then say, Dad, Mom, let's make you a house. Right? We got it covered. We're here for, for you, but not the other way around. And God has not been consistently with David 
through battle and toil and delivering those enemies and delivering David out of these enemies and giving him Jerusalem. He hasn't been wondering and thinking the whole time, when is payday? Right? Man, this guy just takes and takes and takes. Does he ever wish to thank me? Good grief, David's a jerk. That's not David's heart. God's heart, I should say. No. God's heart is grace. God's heart is grace. That's her next point, picking it up in verse 8. Now this is what you are to say to my servant David. Again, God is telling the prophet Nathan to say all these things. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. Now here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking Yahweh is showing how different he is from all the other gods of the nations. Because the gods of the nations are takers, manipulators. If you want my power on your side, you got to give, give, and then give some more. You'll be victorious in battle, but when sacrifice time comes, prepare those children, spill some of your blood. Our God is not a taker. Perhaps God is detecting the heart of David. Here's likely why you want to build me a house. I turned you from a shepherd of sheep, run to the family, to the shepherd of my people Israel, king of the nation. I fought your battles. I've destroyed your enemies. You're at rest. But see, then God reveals something. He's not done yet. He's not done yet. He's got more in store for David. Again, he's not blessing David, saving David, giving David victory, and then wondering when payday is. He's still got some more up his sleeve for David. Grace. Friends, he's got more in store for you. Do you know that today? The heart of God going out to David here is like the heart of God for me, expressed by Paul in Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in you, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He's not done yet. I feel like some of us just resign, well, I'm saved. As if that's it, show's over. And for some of us, it's show's over, and boy, if I ever really blow it again, he's done with me. And for others of us, we get proud, self-righteous, and cocky. He saved me, now it's back to life, and when I die, he saved me, so I'm going to heaven. And so I say to the defeatist sinner, who thinks he's used up all of God's grace, he's not done yet. And I say to the self-righteous, lazy, non-disciple, but still 
professing saved person, He's not done yet. He's got more grace for you. There is still a fullness of God for you, and He is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. And I like that think part because I know there's some people out there scoffing and saying, above and beyond, that's what you think. But here's what I think. Yeah, well, God's able to go beyond where you think. According to the power that works in you. Do you believe that today, that he's not done yet? God's got more in store. He's going to keep giving. He gives his son, and then he keeps giving. He gives his Holy Spirit, and then he keeps giving. And for David, he gave him a kingship, and now he's got more to give. Verse 9, I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. I will establish a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Listen to God's call to Abram. No doubt known by David. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples, some say nations of the earth, will be blessed through you. Paul in the New Testament illustrates the gospel utilizing two lineages. Uh, This is his thinking in Galatians 4. He sees Abraham with, with Hagar and Ishmael. Versus Sarah and Isaac. And he thinks, or he says, the former is of the flesh. And the flesh is like self-righteous religious people. Abraham and Sarah think, we're promised descendants. It's not coming. We'll make it happen. God wants us to take in Hagar and have descendants that way. Only God didn't. God promised descendants. And he promised it through Sarah. And Abraham's true sons, Christians, says Paul are the children of the promise, not the flesh. That's Galatians 4. God is including David herein on the promise of Abraham, and he's doing it verbatim. God said he would bless Abraham. He also blesses David. God said he would give David's people, Israel, a place God told Abraham he would receive a nation as well. Verse 11, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you, When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice God here states what's going to happen. A king with a kingdom forever. And if David catches on, which I think he does, that he's being brought into the handful of human beings so far, Abram, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, he must know that he is both an heir and a progenitor of what is Genesis 12.3. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, the king and the established kingdom forever will bless the peoples of the earth. Now, in this conversation, God, can I make a house for you? I don't think David saw this one coming. 
He just wanted to build God a house, and God's saying, that's cute. Actually, I'm going to build you a house. The house I've been promising through your forefathers in the faith. This is big. David offers a man's gratitude, but he's met with the grace of God. God's grace that says, hear this, it's not about what you do for me. It's about what I'm doing for you. No other so-called God ever dreamt up on planet Earth does that. This is not how the gods of the world operate. You need to hear that again. It's not about what you do for me. It's about what I'm doing for you. Our God is a giver. And it's so hard to receive it, isn't it? Are you a recipient today? We're going through the book of Matthew in Dean's class in Sunday school, and we just made it to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, who's a Jewish man, concerned with Jesus' lineage and titles, fulfilling the Messiah. In fact, he he opens the book with the historical record of Jesus Christ, or the genealogy, the son of David, son of Abraham. But the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out what some might say to be the ethics of his kingdom, what does he start with? Blessed are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. Poor in spirit, not rich. Those who who mourn, not those who are smug. Those who are gentle, not rough. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they know they don't have it. God, our giver, will give heaven, will give comfort, will grant the earth to the gentle, and will fill those who are out of lack of righteousness. He's a giver. And it's so hard to receive sometimes. He's gracious to David. He's building David a house, and he's doing it through the Son. That's the last movement today. We read in verse 14, referring to the kingdom he will establish forever, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. That sounds like Jesus, father and son. But you know, I've been tricky sometimes in other sermons. You know, I've quoted this passage many times, but I always quote up to right about here, and then I stop. You want to know why? Because this doesn't sound like Jesus. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and blows from others. So Hebrews 1.5 quotes this verse and applies it directly to Jesus. For to which of the angels did God, he, ever say, I will be his father and he will be my son. And the point of that chapter in Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is better than angels. But then Yahweh states back here in 2 Samuel 7, when he does wrong, I will discipline him with the human rod and with blows from others. We know Jesus never did wrong. Uh, the very same author of Hebrews makes that point. Jesus is one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Like, that's the same author. And he's saying, this verse is about Jesus, but then elsewhere except the sinning part. He doesn't do wrong. This isn't a contradiction, though. And if we think it is, we fail to understand prophecy as the Scriptures constantly applied it. What God is revealing to David here is that his lineage 
is part of the promised lineage. And as such, there are things that will apply to all his descendants. But my faithful love will never leave him. As I removed it from Saul, I removed him from your way. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. And your throne will be established forever. Nathan spoke all these words in the entire vision to David. The line, the throne of David is eternal. David's name will be eternal. You know, we're talking about David today more than we're talking about some neighboring king or some Philistine king because David is ancestor to the son of David. And the son of David is savior of the world. David's throne is eternal. So there are applications that Yahweh is making to to, to Jesus as Yahweh reveals this to David. But back to 2 Samuel 7.14, it's wording compels us to believe that there are applications at the same time being made to other descendants of David. Solomon, for example. He does wrong. And in fact, very much similar language to 2 Samuel 7.14, being used by 1 Chronicles and applies it directly to Solomon. David is talking to Solomon about this same subject in this chapter, 1 Chronicles 22.9 and 10, and he says, quoting Yahweh, But a son will be born to you, He will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name will be Solomon. The etymology of that name, shared with shalom, at peace, or made whole. His name will be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom of Israel forever. 1 Chronicles 28.6 He said to me, your son is Solomon, who is the one to build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. So what God is saying to David is twofold, if not morefold. I know that's not a word, but hey, if Shakespeare can come up with words, so can I. But Yahweh is revealing to David, your throne will be forever. Your descendant. And that man can be Solomon in some ways, Jesus in other ways will be a son to me, and I will be his father. Do me a favor as you read the New Testament, especially books like Matthew. Go back and read where the author pulls prophecy from. Many Bibles will have footnotes or or cross-references to see where the author was quoting from. And you will see, like the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.5, that they take prophecy that can and likely was applied to some more immediate fulfillment but then they, they use it to reveal how Christ brings a more full, total, entire fulfillment to that prophecy. Like when Jesus says, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. There are foreshadows in the Old Testament wherein Christ is the fulfillment or the substance in the New Testament. And here to David, Christ is the promise. He's the promise. Here's what I like too, that the promise comes when? It comes, it comes now and not in chapter 11. Nor is it revealed after. You know what happens in chapter 11. David shows that while he's thankfully not slaying a town of priests like Saul did, he is stealing a wife and murdering her husband. But here, now, when, when David become, became king and before he stumbled as, as king, God shows up and promises 
Jesus and promises David, I am being gracious and will continue to be gracious. We are introduced here to a well-known character of David's episode with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet. And Nathan appears in only one other episode besides here in chapter 12. You know where else? 1 Kings 1. You know what's happening in 1 Kings 1? David is dying. And what this shows us is that David's highest point, he's finally assumed it all. He's king over all Israel. He's in Jerusalem. He's got the ark. Highest point. God's voice is here and he's blessing. He's promising Jesus is coming. And then in his sin with Bathsheba, murdering her husband, it shows us that David's at his lowest point. But guess who's there? God's voice. And then when he dies, it shows us that whether David is at his highest or at his lowest or at his end, God's voice is always there. I don't know where you're at today. You're at your highest point, your lowest point, or near your end. But I do know that God's voice is accessible. God's voice is here. And His Word is grace. He's got more to give. He's got more for you. He's got Christ, His Holy Spirit. He's got length and width and depth of love. And He wants you to know His love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in you. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Are you listening? Are you listening? Because that's His promise. And it's His promise before your worst sins. It's His promise after your worst sins. And it's His promise for all time until the very end. So where are you? Your highest point? Your lowest point? Or near the end? My only encouragement would be to respond. Wherever you're at, whatever it is, to His promise today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You're always present. You give breath into the lungs of atheists. You give grace to the most ill-deserving. As Paul would say, I chief among them. You come to David and David thinks he's going to impress you with some great plan of his. And you turn around and say, you don't understand me. I'm not like the gods that you see around you. I'm, I'm always a giver, not a taker. I don't need to create things. And then you bring those things I created and say, hey, does this impress you? No, I made them. Father, we thank you that no matter where we're at, what season of life we're in, your voice is always accessible. Sometimes you're like the patient waiting father looking out to the prodigals. Sometimes you come in the form of maybe a missionary to a bunch of statues of gods and say, let me tell you about this unknown God. Father, wherever... We're at, and whatever season we're in, would we please respond in the way you want us to respond today to your voice?
your voice says, I have more to give you. So, Father, if there's anyone here who maybe wants to come up forward and ask for prayer, or maybe right where they're at, and says, you know, I'm a little too bashful, but I would use prayers. Whatever the case is, I pray that you would give them the freedom, whatever they want to do. Why don't we go ahead and say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why don't we just spend a minute of, of silence together? And if you, any of you feel like coming up, we'd love to pray with you. And whenever I just, since it's time, uh, I'll just close the prayer. But let's take some silent prayer together. Holy Spirit, we do thank you for your presence. We do thank you for this truth that even before one of David's most dastardly sins, thankfully recorded for all of humanity to see by you, that you would promise him grace through Jesus. And that's your promise to us today. So wherever we're at, we need to seek your forgiveness and become your child today. I pray that this would be done. If we have been wandering and we need to come back into the fold, I pray that would be done. If we're already in your fold, but we just need assurance. It's like I saw the joke once where it says, Lord, can you give me a fresh word? Read the Bible. (laughs) Can you give me a fresh word audibly? Read the Bible aloud. (laughs) And maybe that's what we've done today, and we hear that you still have more to give us. And we thank you for that. We ask we would take that truth with us wherever we go, that if we do need somebody to talk to, that we would find that today. Call a friend, or if that friend's here, talk to him right now. However you want us to respond, thankfully you give us your word, but then you leave us the freedom to do and to respond as we would. So I pray that we would respond with softness and kindness, because it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.